Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me joining me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain and Intel Officer, Captain Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, hello. Ward, hello. It's great to be here. Yeah, we, we missed uh, last week because we, we got weathered out. We got weathered out. Uh, yeah. I was the Alert 5 briefer for Admiral Daly, run into uh, San Diego for a couple of days. Oh, that's uh, right. How did that go? Uh, it went very well. We, I was, we were invited. He was invited out to talk to uh, a group of uh, executives from Lockheed Martin and just give the... Uh, you know, sort of Naval Institute history and, and overview of what we're doing, what we're, we've been working on to, uh, you know, in the press and in uh, conferences, uh, proceedings, the blog, proceedings today, Naval, uh, USNI News, et cetera. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a great dinner. Always nice to be uh, in San Diego. It was sunny. It was warm. We were at the Yacht Club, uh, Surf and Turf. Which one? Uh, the San Diego Yacht, Yacht Club, home of Dennis Connor and the America's Cup. Oh, Dennis Cup. And, Connor! I yeah. actually met him in Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, he was not there. No, but okay. we uh, we did get to see the trophy room where a lot of those trophies are kept. It was yeah. it was very nautical and very cool. Billions of dollars of yachts, and yes. as far as the eye could see, so it was Fantastic. a it was a nice event. And um, I wanted to highlight a couple of uh, interesting things before we get to our guest today. So. Um, in the March issue of Proceedings, we had an article by Admiral Swift, uh, the Pack Fleet Commander. The second in his the second series. in his series yes. of three. Right. Uh, this one in the March issue was about fleet problems, fleet problems, and how Pack Fleet has brought back this, you know, um, giving significant, hard, challenging tactical problems to carrier strike groups as they transit uh, start their transit across the Pacific. And um, Megan Eckstein of USNI News has written a, uh, a news story uh, where she was out in, in the Fifth Fleet AOR and she was on board some ships out there and, and talked to a number of warfare commanders and a strike group commander about the fleet problems, right, about what they endured coming across uh, the Pacific. Uh, and uh, that, that article in USNI News is called Fight to Hawaii. Uh, and it references Admiral Swift's piece. It's a great summary about how the training audience, how that, that strike group um, felt as they were going through and, and given that fleet problem. So it's a, it's a great piece of uh, news by USNI News. I also caught uh, today the news that uh, the Royal Navy's HMS Ocean, which had been their um, you know, largest capital ship, uh, it's essentially an amphibious assault ship, was uh, decommissioned by the Queen yesterday. And uh, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our members, uh, Captain Rob Pedre, who of Royal Navy, who was the commanding officer of that ship, uh, is a Naval Institute member of 20 years and uh, stopped by here at the Naval Institute in Beach Hall and visited us uh, kind of as a surprise visit about a year ago. So it was great to meet him. And uh, he was in his command tour. Uh, and now his command is decommissioned. And, you know, who knows where he goes next. But uh uh, is that unusual that the queen would be involved? I mean, decommissioning I, I, ceremonies, is that something I, we do with that kind of fanfare? I don't I don't think so. And I think the reason that that ship, which uh, and the, the USNI news story on it, it's, it's only about a 20-year-old ship. So it's a significant vessel for the Royal Navy and to decom it so early in its uh, career. And, it, and it's going to be sold to Brazil, uh, so foreign military sales to Brazil. Um, but I think the reason that they had to decommission it is in order to man the HMS Queen Elizabeth, uh, named for the Queen, um, uh, was they had they get had to get the crew off of the ocean to to um, at least some of them to man up the Queen Elizabeth as they bring that ship to life. So 
Um, yeah, I suspect that this is kind of a, uh, you know, two-parter, like decommission the ocean and then bring to life and commission the, the Queen Elizabeth. So. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you went out to San Diego uh, in, in Pete Daly's stead uh, to talk Naval Institute heritage, right? And, and that, that reminds me or that uh, is a nice segue for something that I came across yesterday uh, while I was uh, um, looking through some of the notes that um, are Opso Emeritus in the building, uh, Dennis Clift, a well-known author, naval officer, and a member of several administrations, national security teams through the years, including the President Ford administration. Uh, so Dennis uh, spent a number of years looking through the proceedings archives, particularly, and finding sort of signature items. Uh, and, and this one I, I stumbled across yesterday, and I will also sort of give a pitch for, for those in the listening audience uh, who aren't members as a value proposition of membership is you have access to the digital archives of proceedings from the first issue in 1874, 75. 74. Um, and, till now, right? And so among those articles is this one by a captain, Chester Nimitz, perhaps you've heard of this man. Um, and in Ju June of 1928, he wrote an article in Proceedings that was titled The Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps. Um, and so uh, he was the first CO, now known as the Professor of Naval Science, at UCAL Berkeley, of all places, right? And so he wrote a definitive piece about this new thing called Naval ROTC, Chester Nimitz. Um, so... If you're a member, you can get behind the firewall and read this article. I recommend it highly. Um, and uh, it's just amazing stuff. You know, it's just a, a, another sort of factoid that we stumble across here in Beach Hall from time to time. Uh, and that just kind of blew my mind yesterday. You know, not just anyone, Chester Nimitz. Right. You know, you could also, cool. if you're a member and, and go into the uh, archives, you can read what Lieutenant Chester Nimitz wrote about the, the advantages of submarines. Yeah. And I think that was around 1912 or 19. Uh, yeah, I think that's about was, right. Yeah, and, and earlier I, in his I saw that one too, and he was talking about how how ga gasoline they wanted to make the subs not gas but diesel because the early boats were actually gasoline. Right, and the uh, Germans were way ahead of us on that. Yeah, and because the gasoline people would get um, like crazy and they'd fight. Actually, that's the term he used. The crew would wind up fighting because of this gas fume sickness. So you know, little things you don't think about. So, so many years on. Wow. All right. So let's get to our guests. Uh, so we've, the, the podcast is now about six months in and um, we started at the end of September and this is the first time we've got Coast Guard guests. So uh, in the March issue of Proceedings, an article called Rewrite the Playbook on Maritime Homeland Defense. The authors are Commander Tim Kurza. I hope I'm getting that right. He'll correct me in a second. And Commander Dana Brooke-Reed, U.S. Coast Guard, who are writing about how the Navy and the Coast Guard and the, the nation need to think about those two fleets as a national fleet. And they make some uh, solid recommendations about some um, investments that can be made to the Coast Guard that would improve the capability of the, the overall team to respond in national emer emergencies. So uh, it's a great piece. Uh, Tim and Dana, uh, welcome to the podcast, and uh, tell us where you're joining us from today. Well, thanks for having us, and uh, it's, it's 
Tim Kersey. Kersey. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Tim. Set the record straight. But uh, I'm calling you from, uh, I just got back from the Pentagon, actually. I'm sitting in my office at home, and uh, yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Dana? Yeah. And uh, I am honored to be amongst your first Coast Guard guests. I didn't realize that, but that's that's very, very uh, good stuff there. Um, I am actually calling you from my home office as well, because today I'm on permissive orders. Uh, as I prepare for my transition into retirement. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. So so tell us a bit about your article. Well, I guess uh, to start and to keep it just, you know, real basic and simple, um, in our positions at Coast Guard headquarters, we had the opportunity to kind of study uh this issue to study the concept of defense readiness and what it means for the Coast Guard and how it can contribute to um, homeland defense. And, you know, we kind of came to the conclusion that the threats to the United States are rising. They're increasing. Um, This is, you know, easily seen in open source reporting. You can see it in, you know, Proceedings Magazine. You can see it, uh, you know, kind of all over the place. Um, so, we started to look at how the Coast Guard fit into defending the homeland, and we identified perhaps some gaps in how uh, the Major Cutter Fleet in particular could support maritime homeland defense, and so we thought we'd put together an article to start a conversation um, and just talk about how we could you know, fill some of those gaps and contribute more to maritime homeland defense. So, the key statement in the first paragraph uh, to my eye was with only a modest investment coast guard forces could play a greater role in the home game maximizing navy capacity project uh, power forward to fight and win the away game so what do we mean by home game and away game so um first of all just to kind of step back um we just tim and i want to make sure that uh it's understood that the views that we're expressing today are our own um, and not directly tied to the views of our commandant or the Coast Guard um, in general. Um, so just wanted to kind of put that on the record. Um, and secondly, I want to step back a bit and remind the audience that, you know, the Coast Guard is at all times an armed force of the United States. So we have Title 10 and Title 14 authorities, and we have a defense operations mission. Um, that's one of our 11 statutory missions. So as such, we feel the Coast Guard you know, has that obligation to be ready to support um, homeland defense. And where we would do that is generally uh, at home and let the Navy project their power forward um, in accordance with of a lot of the strategies, the national military strategy, the cooperative strategy for 21st century sea power. So when we talk about the away game, we mean the, the Navy kind of projecting its power um, abroad. So let's put a finer point on that, Dana, because that's a, that's a very cool, you know, when you talk about Title 10. And, um, so because there's always some confusion in DOD circles about what is Coast Guard's relationship to DOD. Um, so you know, you guys work for uh, the Department of Home, Homeland Security. 
um, you know, solid line, and then from time to time your dotted line, if you will, or attack onto DOD. How, how do we explain that to the layman? Um, Tim, you want to you wanna take a shot, and then I'll fill in any gaps? Well, I, I thought that question may come up, so I just, to make sure that I had my ducks in a row, I, I looked up the U.S. code, and essentially the the Title 14 says that the Coast Guard is to maintain a steady readiness to function as a specialized service of the, of the Navy in time of war. Um, and then also that upon declaration of war, Congress so directs or when the President directs, the Coast Guard shall operate as a service of the Navy. So it's essentially our job to be ready to augment uh, the Navy in times of crisis and times of war and to provide a... Um, additional military capability and capacity to the effort. Got it. So um, the, the article goes on about, um, you know, the, the enhancing the Navy's maritime capabilities to defend against emerging threats to the homeland, that that could detract from the Navy's focus on power projection. And I think, you know, your article brings up a very good point that in a, in a major fight, or if there's, you know, two regional contingencies, the Navy needs to be somewhere. It can't be home, you know, defending against uh, enemy submarines or enemy power projection towards America's shores, right? And so one of your uh, ideas in the article is about uh, adding an ASW capability to the national security cutters. Talk a little bit about that for a minute. Well, I think, you know, long... Long ago, um, ASW was one of those missions that the Coast Guard was able to do for um, or with the Navy. Uh, World War II, I think there's a tremendous amount of history that shows the Coast Guard's value in that particular mission set. And then after World War II, and then you know throughout the Cold War, the you know the the high endurance cutters in particular had an ASW capability, so that um, they were able to support or augment um, the Navy with that, that mission. It could, um, you know, the fleet could support the protection of lines communication, or if there were a, um, you know, adversarial submarine or, you know, subsurface threat that, you know, evo- avoided uh, detection um, and could be patrolling somewhere off the coast of the United States, we had that capability to support that and to try to detect it and, and deter it or defeat it if necessary. Uh, so when the Cold War ended back in the 90s, as we talk about in the article, that threat more or less it dissipated, it disappeared. Um, and so when we were designing the replacement fleet for our high-endurance cutters, that's one of those missions that, you know, to, uh, to save some money, be a little more cost-effective. Um, we eliminated that capability, essentially, from the platform and really focused on the law enforcement aspect of the ship. And, you know, it's a fantastic, our newest cutter, the National Security Cutter, it's a fantastic ship. It does a fantastic job at the law enforcement mission down the transit zone. Uh, in the Caribbean, and I think that, as we point out in the article, that with some relatively modest investment, you could enable these ships to once again 
participate in the ASW mission, and the example we gave was being able to deploy a uh, Navy helicopter, um, the Romeo in particular, the 60 Romeo, which you know, has the ability to detect and, and prosecute a subsurface threat, um, yeah, gets us, gets us back in the game, so to speak. So, Tim, you mentioned yeah. a modest investment. I, I'm sorry, Dana, go ahead. No, 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 and I, I was just going to say, I think we want to also be clear that, you know, we're not being too prescriptive here. You know, we are kind of throwing out, throwing this out as an example for people to chew on, um, something to kind of start a dialogue, get people um, kind of thinking outside the box and, and really, you know, noting that there is there are indicators that we should be moving in this direction you know that we should you know restore this capability to the extent that you know the coast guard can remain you know useful and relevant in that mission space yeah i, so I kind of wanted to throw that out there no roger that and and so i think one of the drivers with respect to what you're saying, is the emergence of peer threats. And you guys mentioned that in the article. Um, so when we think about the last 20 years of, of the Coast Guard, you know, going from Department of DOT to uh, DHS and every, everything that had happened with the diminishment of the Soviet threat and, you know, submarines as a, uh, you know, imminent threat in some ways, now, okay, here goes the global war on terror. You guys are involved in more of the law enforcement piece and the war on drugs sort of thing. Um, and now, it because of the emergence of the near peer and peer threat, this idea is uh, you know has has merits that maybe it didn't have five ten years ago. Um, so what I and and Tim had mentioned uh, sort of the cost effective piece. So let's talk numbers a little bit. Uh, can you can you guys tee up um, the 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 numbers that that you mentioned in the article, and also as part of that, can you talk sort of macro Coast Guard budget um, and 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 your priorities with within that? So how how doable, uh, you know, in a five year plan is this idea? So I think that we tried to keep the numbers real broad. And, I mean, they're really, they're just estimates um, based on conversations that I had had with um, a peer over at the Pentagon, uh, with some of our folks at Coast Guard headquarters that deal with uh, the money in some of these projects that um, would have to be undertaken to, you know, establish this capability again. And, um, you know, it, it really became clear as we started crunching those numbers that you can get a tremendous return on your investment uh, to the tune. I think we estimated in here of about $122.5 million, which again is purely an estimate. And, and we didn't want to get super specific because we were worried that people might, you know, start kind of nitpicking at, at the numbers and not focus on the real point of the article was just that this is a cost effective way to give the National Fleet some more capacity and capability. Um, so that's kind of what that's all about. But in terms of how this money would be generated, um, you know, this, at least in our mind, we weren't necessarily thinking of it as 
a, a Coast Guard cost. I think we were thinking of it, and you can correct me here in a little bit um, mm-hmm. if I'm getting this wrong, but uh, yep. this is, it's, a, it's a cost of the, of the nation. This is a national right. cost to improve the national fleet so that I can do more. And I would say also to, to do it with, with less. I mean, this is, this is a taxpayer value in our mind. Um, and so how would that money ultimately, you know, exchange hands? I'm not a, I'm not a budgeteer, but, you know, we were thinking through the whole, the fleet board process really, right. which is where, you know, the two services, the Navy and the Coast Guard get together and talk about their priorities and talk about, you know, like this could be a topic that they could discuss and, and determine whether or not they thought this was, you know, a good option uh, to invest in, and then that money would, you know, it would exchange hands. But I don't think that we were thinking about it as a Coast Guard cost directly. Um, that would detract from other other programs that we have uh, currently going. Yeah. So right? uh, yep. uh, let me, if I can summarize just a little bit, what's on page thirty in there's uh, infographic in your article. Um, there's thirty five national security cutters and providing an anti-submarine warfare capability to those 35 ships uh, would be about 100, you know, your estimate is $122 million. I I won't hold you to that exact number, but we're talking about, you know, 100, maybe 125, $150 million, and you've got 35 more in the national fleet, 35 more ASW-capable ships. Uh, And your comparison is that, you know, when the Navy starts to build the new class of frigate, FFGX, whatever that will be, at a minimum, those ships, we, we've seen estimates that they're going to cost, uh, you used a low number of $515 million. We've seen in USNI News some estimates that, that they're going to be eight hundred, eight or $900 million a copy for one ship. So your, your point is really, you know, 35 ships that are ASW capable, you know, for, as you say, a modest investment. And that provides a significant capability to the the national fleet. Yes. And I think it's important to mention, you know, that, you know, you're talking about the cost of, of the hardware. You know, we're, we're also adding in factors like the cost of the additional sailors that would be required to be brought on and all the other associated costs, um, you know, associated, or, you know, with building new Navy ships. So, you know, with the retrofit of a you know national security cutter it really is just about the equipment it's not about additional coast guardsmen or sailors it's it's not about additional um you know costs the unintended costs yeah so there'd be some Um, training costs to this mission etc right 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 so um in the, in the breakout page twenty nine, you, you know, two two million dollars or so per cutter for Link sixteen, about a half million dollars per cutter for hangar modifications to be able to house an MH sixty Romeo, uh, and an additional million dollars per cutter for an aviation detachment berthing modification, so you could put the 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 crew on board the 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 uh, aviation uh, detachment on board. Uh, so that's those are the three big chunks of this improvement that you're talking about uh, for the national security cutters. Right, and then the, the future offshore patrol cutter that it's, has not yet been built. But, 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and with those modifications fleet-wide, um, you know, you had a plug-and-play capability for Navy aircraft or Navy whatever the Navy, you know, uses for this particular mission in the future, um, plus folks that can operate it and maintain it, again, whatever it happens to be, and, you know, it really doesn't, aside from that hardware and the, the other things we talk about, the, the ships would continue to operate and do the missions that they, you know, currently do or would be doing in, in the future, um, you know, during normal peacetime ops. Yeah. So we talked about the fact that after the Cold War that this mission set, you know, you know, it, it, it ebbed at least, right, for the Coast Guard. When was the last time the Coast Guard did any uh, training uh, in ASW? Uh, I, that would be total speculation on, on my part. Um, you know, my it's been some time, though. The, the Cutter Gallatin. Um, you know, the, the high-endurance cutters, as I recall, the all-coast that I uh, saw, it was around, it was in the 90s, early 90s, 93 maybe, that the all-coast was uh, published. And I think we may actually cite it here in our, yeah, all-coast 55, um, 1992. That's when we removed the um, ASW mission and sonar tech rating got it uh, got so it yeah, okay. it's probably around then that we we stopped doing this got it exercise okay so uh the article goes on to to offer some counter arguments about why maybe this you know isn't a great idea or you know you, you always have to offer you know the the other side's you know perspective on it um, you know, part of that is that the Coast Guard's really busy with all the 11 mission sets it's ha it has already. Um, and, and you ask a couple questions here. Can, can, um, uh, can they defeat a modern military air threat, a surface threat, or a, a subsurface threat? Um, what was your conclusion about, you know, putting this capability on national security cutters and um, how they would be able to respond to that, that threat environment? I mean, the answer, I mean, we were pretty blunt in the the article, I think. As soon as we asked those questions, uh, we come out and say no. So what we're talking about here, and, this, and I'm glad you asked the question. I think it's important that we really highlight this. We are talking about threats from a peer competitor. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my mind, what that means is, you know, in the subsurface realm, you're talking a, a submarine that has, uh, you know, cruise missiles, land attack cruise missiles that could be fired. Uh, the, the cutters as currently designed, you know, that's, that's not something that they're designed to detect and defeat, period. Uh, that's just not, it's not part of the package. And then in the surface realm and the air realm, again, the, the cutters really weren't designed to go against, say, a you know, a maritime patrol aircraft with, you know, standoff anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, you know, the range of those missiles far, you know, far exceed the range of our, you know, shipboard battery. Uh, so could it defeat that? No. Um, could it defend itself against a couple of uh, cruise missiles? You know, that was part of the, the design of the ship. So it, it could 
protect itself uh, to some degree. But uh, again, when you talk about a modern, you know, surface combatant uh, from a peer competitor, we're not talking about uh, a gunboat per se. We're talking about again ships with, you know, long-range anti-ship missiles, and that's something that uh, you know if a major Coast Guard cutter is currently configured is just they weren't designed to deal with that particular threat. So um, by adding the ability, the capability to deploy Navy tools, if you will, and uh, personnel, then you, at least in the way we prescribe it here, you, you give the ship the capability to detect a threat, a subsurface threat. You give it the ability to prosecute that threat, to communicate about that threat, and then to engage that threat uh, where you couldn't before. Um, and I think that when you look at you know the big picture and all the different uh, threats that we have going on in the world, uh, where does the Coast Guard best fit? You know, I think we came to the conclusion that maritime homeland defense, in our opinion, is is the right mission because the threat is primarily a, a subsurface threat. I don't think that we've seen a whole lot of evidence to suggest that you know, the the homeland is. Um, under threat from a uh, pure surface fleet. Um, so, yeah, we, we came to that conclusion. This is the, the best way for us to play a role, a meaningful role, um, and to do so, you know, with relatively low cost. You also bring yeah. up sort of a – I'm sorry, go ahead, Dana. Yeah, and I think, I think again, going back to, you know, this isn't us you know, taking on an additional mission or volunteering for something that's not, um, you know, a statutory requirement. You know, we, we, we have a defense ops mission and we have to be ready to execute that mission um, when the call comes. And so I think part of this article, part of, you know, what we were thinking was we want to be a little bit provocative here. You know, we want to, we start that dialogue and, and get people who maybe had the assumption that we had the capability to go, really? Are you, are you telling me they only, you know, have a modest self-defense capability and that, you know, if the call came, the Coast Guard really wouldn't be able to answer fully that, that call? Um, or, on the other hand, just to educate people that, yeah, we actually do have a role here. And so... You know, some modest investment, we could actually become quite useful. So I think that you know the article was really trying to just get that dialogue generated and and get people kind of scratching their head and going, well, seems like a no-brainer. You know, why are we not why are we not pursuing this? So. Yeah, we we can never um, assume that the no-brainers are being. <laughs> address so uh, right. exactly exactly right and that's you know to, to be a, sh a shameless pitch for proceedings magazine that's the utility of the uh, independent forum as it has been since uh, since admiral warden created it um so just to riff back on the home game away game piece along what tim was pointing out which is you know and what you just said dana about look this is not a new mission this is our mission right it's an element of what the coast guard mm -hmm. does um, so that becomes a priorities against budget. That becomes a 24 hours in a day against training opportunities. 
Um, so when we talk about away game versus home game and peer threats, so the question becomes, if we have a peer subsurface threat to the homeland, how did the away game become a home game, right? So it doesn't just happen where they show up, you know, in vacapes, um, and suddenly they're 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 launching these uh, you know current generation torpedoes and taking down shipping and choking off you know the Chesapeake Bay or whatever. Um, so the audience should also think that as you you guys have both said, this idea doesn't live in a vacuum, right? This would be a defense in depth portion where a Chinese submarine, which, whichever class, I'll let my intel officer in this scenario tell me what class submarine we're talking about here. What, what submarine would be would be a threat like this? Anyone, just give yeah, me a, a A song class, okay, a song uh, class. diesel submarine, yeah, yeah. Op operating uh, so made around it, Hawaii made or something, okay, right? Yeah. yeah, but he made it from home port in a Chinese port. What would be a Chinese port that they'd be home-based? Uh, Hainan. Okay, so it went from Hainan to Hawaii, somehow wound up in in San Diego, right? And, and it's it just somehow sunk a ship or is a threat to sink a ship. And we, because of Intel Tipper, now that's when this idea would kick into place, right? Because everybody else, the the fleet is forward-based and, and you know so forth and so on. Um, so, exactly, exactly. Or if, like say, if the, if the Navy was aware or the, you know, combatant commander was aware that they, you know, they were not tracking a submarine or a subsurface threat that they felt they should be tracking, uh, you have to, you can't ignore it. Right. Right. So, currently, yeah, it, it, I mean, the option then is to use uh, other defense resources to track that thing, to detect it, to find it, so that the threat, you know, could be, you know, appropriately dealt with. Yeah, and, and you you, uh, you also bring up the great point, which is, what if the Navy were to start taking significant casualties? So even in the away right. game, right, how, how is the Coast Guard going to backfill the Navy if there's significant casualties out in the Western Pacific or in the Baltic or some, you know, some other place, right? And that, that, that this is, your, your argument plays into that discussion as well. Yeah, and, and if they were involved in multiple conflicts uh, simultaneously, which is not outside the realm of the possible. Yeah, you know, you for, know, for, Navy, for ages, the, you know, the yeah. DOD has planned against two, two major regional contingencies, right, two MRCs. Um, and so that's, that's part of our, our strategic landscape is thinking about what do we do about Iran and North Korea at the same time? What do we is do? Is that still our standing, though? It's still, right? I think it's... I think, it's, I think it, a QDR said now we're doing one and a half. Yeah, it's kind of one right. and a half. It's changed, right? But, it's, but, but the thought that there, it's, it's not going to be, you know, just one thing at once, we, we yeah. may have to deal with, two, you know, two things or one and a half significant, you know, problems at once. Yeah. Yeah. So in general, or, 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 and again, as you stated up front, Dana, this is, this is not the official stance of the United States Coast Guard. Uh, are you guys, as you look at the, the out-year budgets and as you look at, you know, the Coast Guard's priorities and you, as you look at the attitudes around the Pentagon, Tim, um, are you guys feeling like the Coast Guard is being appropriate, appropriately utilized, underutilized? Um, what, what's, your, what's your general temperature on, on that, that sort of thing? That's a uh, that's a it's a good question, and uh, you know I'm nervous to answer it. To be honest. 
No, this is we're among friends here. Remember, this is uh, the open forum. It's it's a nice, cozy place to say things like this. No, I, well, I, I, think, I just go ahead, Dana. Yeah, I was I was going to say I think um, you know these are the kind of conversations that we want to have, you know, at the National Fleet Board, you know, where the Coast Guard and Navy leadership sit down and and kind of have these these discussions about you know roles and responsibilities and what's in the art of the possible and so i think that that forum and others like it are really useful in you know getting the conversation going and and really kind of um identifying gaps and and solutions well well related to ward's question a little bit indirect way to ask a similar question would be what kind of feedback have you received uh, on your article. So this is now the, it's towards the end of March this is one of the last March issues we'll talk about on the podcast. Um, and that the article has been out there for a month. So what, what kind of feedback are you getting from your bosses or your coworkers or others in the Coast Guard? What kind of, are you getting fan mail uh, on this article? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, from people that I've talked to about the article and about the concept, I've got some, uh, you know, colleagues over at the, the Pentagon and uh, at the Naval War College. Um, and I think the, the feedback has been pretty good. Um, I can't, I mean, I haven't got a ton of feedback, you know, from, uh, you know, folks at folks at headquarters. I don't know if, um, you know, they've read the article or not, or, um, you know, if they generally, uh, you know, just didn't have a, an opinion on it or whatever, but I haven't gotten a lot of feedback there about it. Um, but, you know, like I said, the, the feedback I have gotten from folks that, that read and wanted to talk about it was, was positive. Yeah, and like I said, I, I'm really hoping this is just the beginning of the conversation and, and that it doesn't end with, you know, um, the April edition coming out. And, you know, we're, we're really hoping to kind of inject this into, you know, different forums and get people continuing to talk about it. Coast Guard's going to have some new leadership uh, coming in here uh, the next year. So, you know, wherever we can kind of, you know, inject this into a conversation, um, I think that's what we're committed to doing because, you know, we really believe if not this solution, um, something, you know, some something needs to um, come to fruition. And, you know, the 355 ship navies, probably not in our near future. So, you know, we really need to. That's keep not what I heard. <laughs> no, that's yeah. A, yeah, that's a great. That's a great point, though. It, it is no, you know, even if even if the navy gets all the money it wants for the next, you know, ten years, it's still going to take some time to build a. That's right. not what I heard. <laughs> well, well, well this, thank I mean, you. I mean, I would say this too: if you know, if 355 were possible, and 355 were going to happen. Wouldn't it be great if instead of 355, maybe you did 354 plus? Yeah, it's you know. Well, your 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 idea makes it makes it 390. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's just any way you want to argue it. I think Dana and I would suggest that this is this is a good return on investment on a small investment. Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so that again is uh, Commander Tim Curtsy. And Commander Dana Reed, U.S. Coast Guard, our first Coast Guard podcast guest, 
their article in the March issue of Proceedings on um, Rethinking Homeland Security, Homeland Defense Mission. And uh, it was great to have you guys on the guest today. Thanks for being uh, patient with us as we had to cancel last week on you and, and brought you back on today. Um, I want to do a, a real quick uh, tour of the April issue, which is uh, you know, on our desk today, and it'll be in our readers' uh, mailboxes this weekend. It'll be available online this weekend. Show them the cover. It's a cool yeah. cover. The cover I can show to our Facebook fans here. Uh, oh, hold it. i got to turn it around. There you go. Sailor being hauled out of the water in a uh, search and rescue mission uh, from by a helicopter. Um, the uh, we've got some great pieces by everybody from uh, an article by Admiral Mullen and Admiral Natter writing about the surface warfare career path and and looking back at changes that were made in the Navy on their watch and taking ownership for things like the COXO fleet up and saying you know maybe we need to rethink that. Um, we've also got a piece by a, a Lieutenant JG who I think is a, an Oxford scholar now, uh, who is writing about the fact that other navies, particularly the Russian Navy, are uh, bringing back tactical nuclear weapons, and the U.S. Navy needs to think about that. We've got a piece by Sam Tangretti and a colleague at the, Nash, at the Naval War College talking about how the amphibious force needs to be able to fight to get to the fight, to use uh, Commandant Neller's uh, quote from, uh, from West, where you know amphibs aren't just going to be able to get where they uh, need to get and then disembark Marines and project power ashore. They need to be part of the the fight at sea, the, the war at sea. So uh, April issue, look for it in your uh, mailbox or look for it online, www.usni.org. Uh, proceedings on the, the bottom left-hand side of the screen. It'll be up uh, and loaded uh, starting this weekend. So April 1st is, uh, is Sunday, and uh, you'll be able to access it this weekend. So... Looking forward to it. Thank you again to our guests and uh, thanks to our listeners. And uh, remember, uh, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.